Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have uh, left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos, as I am uh, always like to point down to while we're doing this. And by the way, also down there in the description section uh, of this video and all my videos are links to uh, my Patreon and ways to support the channel if you're finding this content helpful, educational, informative, and entertaining. And I hope it is all of the above. So let's get on with your questions. Alex C., what impact would it have had if the Sea Org prioritized morale with day more days off, more parties, and better food? Did squeezing the staff actually make more production, or did it just lead to massive turnover? Thanks for this question, Alex, and it allows me to expound here a little bit about some ideas on uh, emergency status of situations or you know, how when you have to drive into overtime and make things happen and make things go right, as they like to say in Scientology, this is uh, the sort of normal operating basis in Scientology and then the Sea Org especially. Everything is now, 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 taka, 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 oh my God, you know, uh, everything has to happen. And tomorrow is too late and, and this kind of fr mad frenetic activity that is always going on there. Uh, do things have to be run that way and uh, what would happen, you know, if it wasn't run that way? Well, you can run things like that for short periods of time, but when you try to do that over a long period of time, that's where it becomes, you know, uh, really physically and even psychologically damaging to people. Uh, had L. Ron Hubbard or David Miscavige had it in mind that the staff that they that service them and that serve the public and are make up constitute Scientology, if they had it in their minds at all that these staff were important and mattered and were worth something, then you would see a radically different version of Scientology. You would have staff who would be paid. You would have staff who could have time off on a regular basis. You would have staff moving up the bridge, doing their Scientology, because that's their exchange for being a Scientologist staff member or Sea Org member and doing all that work in the first place. It's all about getting up the bridge and making operating thetans, at least in theory. But if you're a Sea Org member or a staff member, you find those roads blocked all the time and you, are, and you cannot make progress. The 17 years that I was in the Sea Org, I did not make one advance on that bridge to total freedom. I received over a thousand hours of security checking and I did receive repair auditing, but I never made any progress on the bridge. All the progress I made in Scientology as a Scientologist was made when I was a public person as a teenager and as a staff member when somebody kindly decided to deliver my uh, auditing, my lower level auditing to me. And that was by chance and circumstance, not even not even uh, regular usual arrangements. So. You know, the staff in Scientology are the ones who are suffering the worst, and the Sea Org especially. And they, it's a thankless, you know, job of toil and, and real slavery and control. But it's clear that L. Ron Hubbard and David Miscavige both couldn't have cared less. They didn't care about the staff. And one of the one of the things that unfortunately we see uh, voiced in 
the independent Scientology field and from some ex-Scientologist, oh, well, it wasn't that bad. L. Ron Hubbard really cared about us. You know, it was all Miscavige and, you know, these kind of uh, lines that are just pure nonsense. It was abundantly clear, as we have shown over and over again between my interviews with John Atack and my other work, that L. Ron Hubbard never had a kind or compassionate bone in his body for his staff or even his own family. So it was never in the cards for the staff or the Sea Org to have it better or have decent living conditions. I want to be super abundantly clear about that, at least from my point of view and, and from my you know, understanding of Hubbard and his work. Had he done that, okay, so since the question is what impact would it have now that I've, you know, soapboxed here about why it's not, had he done that, had L. Ron Hubbard done that or had David Miscavige done that, it would have been truly revolutionary. Had real civil and human rights been brought to the levels of, you know, the Scientology staff, you would see a complete renaissance in Scientology. You really would. You'd see things very, very differently there because a lot of the levels of oppression and coercion would be removed. Staff would ha be able to make money. Staff would have time off to go have some days off. Sea Org members would actually at least, at least if you guaranteed them their one day off every two weeks and, get, and made it a full day, don't give them this half day bullshit, you know, where you're just like, you know, meeting out little tiny rewards to keep them on a, on a chain. Really, really reward your staff with movies and bonuses and nights out and things like that. They, they, those were so few and far between back even when I was there. Now, I'm sure they're all but non-existent. But even if they're not, even if they're still there, they're there probably at the same level they were when I was there, which is few and far between. I went for periods of a couple years between days off when I was a Sea Org member. And being a staff member was a thankless job of 40, 50, 60 hours a week in Santa Barbara, where I was squeezing in a full-time 30 to 40 hour a week job so I could make money. So all I was doing was working for Scientology. And that is the story of so many staff and, of course, Sea Org out there. So it would have, it would have a tremendous impact on that group if they actually were paid were actually given some uh, boosts, some rewards, as well as, as well as penalties. And the amazing thing about this is it's well within the writings of L. Ron Hubbard to be able to do this. It's not like Hubbard didn't write certain policies that could have been positively applied. When I was a, a Scientology Sea Org executive, I rewarded my juniors when the statistics were up for the week. We went to the movies. We went out. I gave them dinners. I was really bucking hard to reward my staff because I knew that that was how I would get more production out of them because that's just, you know, humanity 101. But so many people in the Sea Org didn't have that viewpoint or didn't duplicate Hubbard's writings on that point. It was there to be seen. There's a policy letter called rewards and penalties. I applied it. I used it. Now, I'm not saying in that that Hubbard was a good guy. I'm saying, in fact, it, it made it kind of worse because I was in a culture that derided and invalidated policies like that because it was go, 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 taka, taka, taka. And that was L. Ron Hubbard again, and that was David Miscavige reinforcing it. So... So it's, a, it's that contradictory, crazy-making, double-bind thing. Well, we have rewards and penalties. We're supposed to have rewards. And my senior literally telling me, 
you don't need to be rewarding your staff. That's like paying them off for production. It's like bribing them for production. Why would you do that? They should just work because they want to. I was told that with a straight face. Like, screw rewarding these guys. But hey, when the stats are down, you penalize the hell out of them. It's galley. It's scrubbing dishes. It's, you know, toilet bowls with a toothbrush. It's all the, you know, all that and more. Anything that's too gruesome. So, you know, so this is the Scientology culture that that, you know, thought exists in. And it did not, squeezing the staff did not result in more production. Absolutely, positively does not. Over time, definitely does not. You get tired, weak, ineffective, mistake-making staff members who fall all over themselves. And because of the sleep and food deprivation and the semi-psychosis that is brought about by the environment, they're at each other's throats all the time. And the, the, you know, the whole snitch reporting culture. So it really becomes very Lord of the Flies kind of an environment, if you all have read that book. Or heard about that, you know, with the boys trapped on the island and they all, you know, uh, are at each other's throats. So that's that's the Scientology group think. And uh, and it alternates between that, it behind closed doors, mostly, and then this f- complete opposite fake public image of smiles and happiness and joy. And this is the most ecstatic, amazing, awesome experience I've ever had you know, and, and, and staff members lose their damn minds over this because they're, they're bopping back and forth between these two extremes. So ugh, there you go. Michael Yoder, in different lectures, LRH talked about two things that I haven't heard before. What does being located and boil off mean in Scientology's? All right, Michael, I really think you are listening to way too many L. Ron Hubbard lectures and coming to me for your word clearing. <laughs> but it's always illust- you know, illuminating uh, to get your questions and share them with the audience and, and let people in on some of these Scientology concepts. Uh, being located is really, I, as I understand it as a term, unless you can give me some context, um, I understand it to really just be uh, the Phaeton's the location or being located means you are arriving at and know you are arriving at a location as a spiritual being. Um, you're being located in your head or, you know, in a body or in a room or whatever. I, I think that's just a regular term. I, I don't think that's special language. Boil off, however, is, has got a little bit of an interesting history to it. It's a, ter- it's a Dianetics term that referred to the fact that people would, in Dianetics sessions, fall asleep or go unconscious and just lose it, just not be there at all. And they wouldn't respond and nothing was really happening. And there were various um, remedies uh, proposed for this. First one was ignore it, leave it, you know, just don't do anything. Don't interrupt the person, just let them go through it. Eventually they'll wake up and the auditor was just supposed to sit there. But I think that after about, you know, three hours of sitting there watching some guy nap off, uh, you know, or snooze in the middle of an auditing session, the auditors probably got a little bored with that. And maybe if they were doing nighttime sessions, it might have gotten a little bit, you know, um, of a burden. So Hubbard, and whether that was the reason or not, at some point Hubbard changed the idea and they made it where you were supposed to nudge the person or wake them up and not let them boil off, you know, drift off and fall off. And really, this is, the, this is where the trance goes too far. I talk about trance induction in, in Dianetics, how it's a, it's a form of hypnotism, 
and how the Dianetic Reverie, the Hubbard refers to the fluttering of the eyelids, and you're going to close your eyes, count backwards from 10 to 1, and you're going to put this person into this Dianetic Reverie. Well, that's that's hypnotism, guys. And um, now they don't necessarily do all of those things, but the repetition of commands induces um, a, a sort of altered state or uh, other processes they have uh, have ways and means of inducing this sort of trance, you know, semi-hypnotic state. So um, boil off is when that goes a little bit too far and the person actually just straight up falls asleep, right? Just loses it entirely goes off into their head and then just kind of goes unconscious or semi-conscious. And Hubbard, um, you know, I think at this point in time and for most of the time that Scientology has been around, the solution to boil off was to nudge the person or wake them up or bring them out of it and get them, get them going on the process again. Because the theory is that the Scientology, the Dianetics or the Scientology procedure, what they call a process, a series of commands or questions, these are what will get the person through their, their reactive mind stuff. And Hubbard assigned this boil off. He didn't say it was hypnotic trance gone too far, that it was a person simply falling asleep. He said that it was the accumulated unconsciousness and the feelings of pain and unconsciousness that existed in the engrams that you're trying to find. And they just pile, that just piles onto the person in what's called restimulation. When you pull up or recall or have tremors of memories of an incident of pain and unconsciousness in your past, then, and it's brought now in the present, and you're feeling the pains or you're feeling uncomfortable or somehow this memory is impinging or imposing itself on you. The theory in Dianetics is that that is called, that's restimulation. That incident is being stimulated again in the present and, and affecting you. So the boil off is um, Hubbard saying, you know, uh, that that's, you know, the accumulation of that and it gets on you and it's too much and you have to uh, nudge the person through and get them through the process anyway. And, and, and I think he said at one point later that you've probably tackled material that is too much for the person. You've you, you gone too far. Maybe you should pull back and maybe try something easier. But now that you're in the middle, you got to get through it because uh, that's the rule in auditing is what turns it on will turn it off and get the PC through it and the way out is the way through. Those are the three guiding principles. So if it starts in a session, you're going to have to run it through and get it done. Get her done. And uh, that's how Scientology thinks about mental phenomena is that it's stuff to re-stimulate and run through. And by doing that, you're erasing it, making it go away, and it's never going to come back. That is not at all how the mind works, but it's how L. Ron Hubbard said it works, and that's the model Scientologists use. So I hope that clarifies Boyle-Off for you. Steve Wood. In the recent podcast you did with an ex-Scientologist from London, he said he was attracted to it by the line, it will make the able more able. Have you ever seen somebody join Scientology in a wheelchair or otherwise disabled? Does that make him unappealing since they will never be more able, physically at least? All right, Steve, thank you for this question. And yes, I have. I have seen Scientologists in wheelchairs, and not temporarily, but people who come in who are disabled. They cannot walk. They have uh, cerebral palsy or uh, some other condition, and they are disabled. And when that happened, if they had money, 
we were more than happy to take it with the promise that we could probably do something about it. Now, we knew the legal contracts were such that we were not actually obligated to cure this person or promise them any kind of cures, but it was all about the inference and it's all about connecting dots that don't connect. And that happens in Scientology 24-7 when it comes to selling people things. And so we would sell these people. And this was not something, when, we, when I say we, I mean the group. I did not personally engage in selling um, Scientology services to disabled people, but I certainly oversaw it and watched it happen. And when I was on a uh, mission, for example, in Twin Cities, there was a man who came in who was disabled. And he was hoping, and we were all hoping. I mean, again, I was a true believer. All of us were. And so we really did believe, even if the legal contracts protected us, we knew or thought we knew that Scientology was capable of changing bodily conditions, that you could, you know, you could address a person satanically, so to speak, and they could adjust or change or cure their body. And I had seen, you know, things that I thought were convincing of that. Uh, they were not. They were just, you know, coincidence and nonsense. But I was sold on that idea. It was not hard to sell me on it, especially since I grew up thinking it was true. And so um, I was fully in support of the idea that we were going to cure or at least help out these disabled uh, folks. And in Minnesota, for, for example, auditing was done, a lot of objective type auditing, not subjective. I think there was a little bit of a mix of both. And this was introductory level beginning auditing, not major grade chart or OT level stuff. And there were euphoric, awe-induced moments where the person, the, 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 the disabled person, felt amazing. They came out of session. I'm so happy. This is so wonderful. Maybe this will help me get better. You know, maybe I could move my leg. I think I felt something, you know. And this was the same order of, of nonsense as when I was a teenager being audited on Dianetics and I thought I could cure my eyesight by this. And this was a big deal for me when I was a teenager. I really wanted Dianetics and Scientology auditing so that I could adjust my eyesight and I wouldn't have to wear glasses. I thought that was entirely a thing that you could have happen. And I had some Dianetic auditing and for brief moments, I thought my eyes were absolutely better. So, you know, so I had my own experience with that. And then, of course, the, 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 the improvement sort of faded. I still needed my glasses. And I was bummed about that. And the way I sort of, I'm trying to remember, I sort of reconciled myself to that thinking, well, maybe something else got re-stimulated. There's that re-stimulated thing again. It's a core concept of Scientology that things get re-stimulated. And that's what causes your uh, chronic pains, your... Um, your issues, your emotional problems is re-stimulation. So it's sort of this catch-all answer for everything in Scientology is, oh, the guy got re-stimulated. And that re-stimulation can stay in re-stimulation, thus you can have chronic conditions. And the only answer is getting up the bridge and doing Scientology and eventually whatever it is that's in re-stimulation, you'll catch it and it'll go away and suddenly, boink, you'll be better that was kind of the level of thinking that I engaged in and that I thought and talked with other Scientologists about, and they would say similar things. So that was our attitude about that. Um, and it was sort of the same kind of fuzzy, weird logic, right, as 
um, as the doomsday cultists, the whole confirmation bias thing where uh, you find reasons to continue to believe even when the evidence points to, you know, the exact opposite direction. You don't want to see that. You want it to make sense. You want it to, to, to work. So you figure out how to make it work in your mind. You rewrite reality in order to make it true. We all do that, by the way, guys. But in cults is where we see it so extremely demonstrated because you can see objective fact is that's not happening. And the cult member will go, yeah, it is. And you're like, you start, whoa, they, that's that's weird. You know, this guy's in a really weird headspace. Yeah, they are. <laughs> you know, it's it's called coercive controls and, and brainwashing. So that's what that's all about. And um, and as far as answering your question here, Steve, as well about um, does that make him, you know, disabled people unappealing? If they have money, they are appealing. If they don't have money, they're not. That's the thing that makes somebody appealing. You know, you understand that making the able more able is coded language. I mean, there is the whole thing about disabled people, but there's also the fact that it's coded language for people who have money. If you're able, from a Scientologist's point of view, you are somebody who is exchanging and earning and making things happen in life. You're not destitute. You're not broke. You're not on the streets. You're not a welfare person. You're somebody who's causatively making things happen. The ideal of this is a Tom Cruise or a Grant Cardone. They idolize those guys. Those are what Scientology considered to be the able. You see, it's not just a, a physical status. It's a socioeconomic statement. And this is one of those things that no Scientologist would ever readily admit to, but I personally believe every single one of them actually does understand at a sort of core level, but even if they don't want to admit it to themselves. So that's a, another little deeper statement about that, uh, Steve. So there you go. FVRTOC. I have never heard ex-Scientologists talk about exactly what occurs in an auditing session or security check. I'm curious if auditing sessions or security checks are considered privileged by the law. Is that why there's not a lot of info on it in podcasts or YouTube live chats? Well, this is a very interesting question. Now, my first response, of course, is, well, I've talked about it in detail and at length on my channel. So, of course, it just tells me that it's buried somewhere in my channel and I'm not making it accessible enough or you guys aren't looking for it. So, it's there. I have broken down Almost every part of Scientology auditing, case supervision, the purification rundown, the entire grade chart, every single service I have given a breakdown on what it is and how they're how it's delivered. Um, I've talked at great length about what happens in OT sessions as well as regular auditing sessions on this channel, uh, all within the last couple of years. So, of course, I will first refer you in that direction. Now, having said that, and being, of course, hyper aware of my own content, as far as other people's channels and shows and things like that goes, you're kind of right. Not a lot of people get into the weeds on this stuff. That's one of the things that makes my channel unique uh, compared to other channels on this topic is that I do go all in and explain all the mechanisms and all the things that are going on in this stuff. I mean, hell, my whole research paper uh, that I got my degree with was an analysis of Scientology security checking and a breakdown of how it's a coercive controlling uh, methodology. 
comparable with uh, police interrogations. That's that's the comparison I made. So you've so so there is material out there on this stuff, but why doesn't anybody else talk about it? Well, mostly because they don't really. They weren't trained in the first place. They didn't understand the tech or they don't know how to explain it to other people. You know, I've produced hundreds of videos breaking down all the different pieces and parts of of Scientology. And it still hits me to this day how little people actually grok or understand the, the enormous, the immensity of the body of Scientology. It is represented by... 26 books, thousands of issues, uh, written issues, thousands of L. Ron Hubbard lectures. And he's not just saying the same thing over and over and over again. There are hundreds of techniques, hundreds of assists alone uh, as a technique. An assist is just one kind of technique, and there's hundreds of them. There's hundreds of objective processes that you can run in addition to the assists. Then there's the grade chart and all of the auditing procedures. And I mean, there's, there are about 12 different, um, maybe, maybe six to eight different auditing techniques that I could go over in detail with you. But I, I would feel like I'm putting together a Scientology training video if I went into that level of minutia on how Scientology is put together and how it works. So and and I and that's me. Other people don't even want to go anywhere near it. It's it's a little hard to explain. They like to reduce it down to the simplicity of it's controlling, it's manipulative, it's hypnotism, it's trance induction. I mean, I, I've said those things. Other people, you know, take that and run with that, or have said that in the past. That's not you know none of that's new or original thinking to me. And that's as far as they go with it. So you will find. Descriptions of auditing and the auditing process and and the psychological impacts of that in academia, you'll find a couple papers about it, uh, it remarking on certain parts of it, but very little actually. And uh, and the same in podcasts and YouTube streams, right? Is it's like people don't people want to spend their time talking more about the salacious, titillating, you know, wow, uh, scandal of the day connected with Scientology. It tends to be a bit of a circus sideshow, sort of freak show for a lot of people, and that's not my viewers, and that's not what the that's not the the community or the sub or the, the 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 subscriber base that I've created. I'm not I'm not doing that, but other people do, and lots of other people do, and have for many many years, and that is what attracts people's attention, and they get very very you know oh my god about it. And that's all great, and I want the attention on the subject because it is actually deserving of a great deal of attention because it is very harmful. But in terms of why it's harmful and how it's harmful and what it really does to a person and what the auditing process is, most people aren't that interested. They don't want to go that far. They don't really want to understand how the sausage gets made. And the proof of that is views on my channel versus views on others. I get that. I stopped fighting that a while back and came to realize that I am and other people in academia and other more educated or sorry, more educational type channels are not going to get that broad spectrum of viewership, you know, and the, and the, the, I dare I make this comparison, but you know, you take somebody like Ken Burns, who's a master level documentarian 
who has produced some of the most amazing educational material that has ever been produced on the Civil War, on jazz, on baseball, on so many different topics that he's done you know, really long-form documentaries on. Ken Burns is an amazing creator and an amazing individual, and, he is, and he's helped educate thousands and thousands and thousands of people. But he's never going to have the draw that Steven Spielberg has. <laughs> even though the documentaries Ken Burns make are even emotional and emotionally engaging and are quite interesting. It's education. People just aren't as interested, you know, and that's why I think you don't see as much about it as you do see all of that other's content. And that's my theory. That's my idea on it. But I think the numbers support my my statement on that. So you wanted an answer on that as far as why it's not there? Well, I think that's why. And uh, you can keep coming to my channel. I'll keep giving you the, the straight dope on this stuff as best I know how. Bob Smith. I'm interested in your thoughts regarding Scientology and, by extension, other thought control subjects. What the implications of quantum mechanics might be, particularly the effects of observation on a system. All right, Bob, thank you very much. So um, first, I'm going to say absolutely nothing uh, is the answer to your question. What does you know, the effects of observation on a system or the implications of quantum mechanics might have in regard to Scientology or thought control subjects? It, there is no connection there. Quantum mechanics is uh, not about any of that. And I am not an expert on quantum mechanics, obviously. But I do know people who are uh, teachers and uh, physicists, quantum mechanics physicists. Like, I know people. I go talk to them every week at the, at the uh, community I go to here in Denver, the uh, secular hub. There's a whole table of old engineer types there, and I get to go pick their brain all the time. And so when you asked this question, it took me a little while to get to it because I went down there and picked their brain on this. I was like, what is this whole observation on a system thing? And what is this Nobel Prize that was awarded just this last year in, in uh, quantum mechanics for this whole thing about uh, this, this business of a particle here and a particle here. And as soon as you observe the particle here, you know the state of the particle over there. What's that all about, right? And this was what the Nobel Prize was awarded for. Well, I'm already misexplaining it because I can't even remember the damn terms. But what I do remember are the concepts that I spoke with them about when I brought in the subject of spirituality and Scientology and Deepak Chopra came up uh, because he's somebody who pushes an awful lot of pseudoscientific spiritual garbage and disguises it with uh, quantum, with language of quantum mechanics. And um, that's a gross, gross misrepresentation of what that field is all about. Quantum mechanics doesn't exist to explain your ego, your consciousness, or your spirituality, or who you really are. That's not what it's for. That's never what it was intended for. And it doesn't do that job because of that fact. People like to take the principles of quantum mechanics and twist and turn and, and, and mold and meld them and, and stick them together with their own nonsense and, frankly, bullshit, if I may be so bold, and, you know, and give it out to people in, in books with big flowery language as though they really know what they're talking about. And they have, you know, Deepak Chopra, for example, has letters after his name, and it's just... It's just a bunch of bunk. And Bob, I, I don't mean to take your question and just, you know, kind of dump all over it. I mean, it has about as much relevancy. It's kind of like asking about uh, zodiac signs and whether the zodiac is something that actually has uh, meaning and implication in destructive cults. Well, 
it does in that it's a set of symbols and beliefs and ideas that are utilized by people who don't quite understand agency and cause and effect and how the universe works in order to create a faux sort of tapestry of agency and causation between themselves and the gods and the stars. And that's not, you know, if you then brought in and asked me, okay, well, that's so the zodiac and the signs and the stars and everything. So how does astronomy inform our understanding of the human spirit? And I would say it doesn't because this whole zodiac thing is all just nonsense. It doesn't, you see what I mean? It's this, it's this sort of veneer that's laid over something that makes it look like something that's really not. And, and that's kind of why I, I, I'm ending this going, I can't really answer your question because it doesn't even apply to the subject matter. Unless you can clarify for me, and I'm happy to, for you to do so, Bob. I know it's been a while since you've asked me this question, but if you want to clarify more to what you mean by this in terms of how it might be relevant, but as I see it right now and after having spoken with some you know, uh, physicists about it, they were pretty clear about the fact that spirituality ain't got nothing about that. It's about um, quantum mechanics and it's about relativity and the general theory and it's about uh, how things behave at very, 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 very tiny, unimaginably tiny levels where standard Newtonian physics and 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 you know and the the all the, the the principles we understand about gravity and nature and reality and planets and systems and all that Newtonian mechanics that all goes in the trash can when you get down to the level of subatomic particles is basically the point here and that doesn't help you understand reality in any practical sense nor does it give you any um, I'm talking about you and me now as lay people it helps quantum physicists understand what they're trying to understand. But it doesn't give us any leg up in understanding who we are, what we are, what makes us tick, or how we make decisions, or how we cause things in the world. These are not the questions that are answered by quantum mechanics. So um, so it's a kind of a big no answer answer here for you, but it's an answer of, hey, let's kind of move away from this nonsense and let's deal with the reality that that is a topic that is uh, very well-defined very codified and hyper-specific in its application. And uh, that's how I understand the reality of quantum mechanics versus the fantasy and myth and lore that's revolved, that's developed around it on the internet. Uh, so hope that helps. So no, hope that helps. There you go. All right, let's do some flash answers. Shimoda Tala. Sonic the Hedgehog or Mario? I got to go with Mario 100% here. I have never played Sonic. I know. Don't kill me. I never had the Sega system. Uh, and we used to joke about Sega and my hair used to be spiky and they used to call me Sonic sometimes. But I never played Sonic the Hedgehog. I have played hours and hours and hours of uh, Mario in lots of different um, uh, game systems, lots of different places. So uh, Mario. Coach PJ Little the third. I was wondering what David Miscavige eats. Does he eat with the people? Does he have a personal chef? Can he only eat what everyone else eats? Or does he have a special diet? Does he travel alone with an entourage? Do the people closest to him know his cons? Okay, a lot of questions there that I have really no idea about. But I will tell you what I have heard and, and I used to know. 
Um, he has since passed away, but uh, Miscavige's personal chef left the Sea Org, and he had he had some interesting things to say. But um, yeah, Miscavige has his own chef, eats his own food, does whatever the hell he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. He's not restricted by any Scientology rules of behavior or codes of conduct. He only has to do that when he's in front of other people or when there's some sort of stage management going on. Otherwise, he could care less, uh, you know, couldn't care less, rather. And um, and he lives the life of Riley. He lives high on the hog. You know, he has the best of everything. Uh, he has endless fonts of, of money and reserves to draw upon, to have all the physical things he wants. And he's never going to want for anything. So uh, that's basically the answer to all your questions there, um, you know, and... Yeah, he definitely does have an entourage, by the way. He never travels alone, ever. He's always got a security detail and other people around him uh, who can always be used to uh, take a bullet, take a fall, uh, or fall on their sword for him should it be needed. There you go. Bradley Valley. How does Miscavige get away with not having done the whole bridge and becoming OT8? I have read and heard from many podcasts and YouTubers that he's nowhere near OT8. Am I mistaken? Well, Bradley, I actually don't know uh, exactly what level he got to. I've been told different things. I've seen different things about it. It's all a big rumor, you know, mill, and that's all fascinating. But Miscavige gets away with whatever he wants in Scientology. I don't know that this is really like so clearly, you know, I've answered so many questions so many years about this, and it still comes up over and over and over again. He is an absolute dictator, and Scientology is a totalist system. David Miscavige gets whatever he wants, whenever he wants. So nobody's going to question him. Nobody's going to go up to him and go, you're not OTA. Get, get, give me that folder. You can't be looking in there. No one is going to do that to him in the world of Scientology, ever. So, you know, so, so he can do whatever he wants, and that's how he gets away with it. It's, it's, it's authority, it's, it's status and hierarchy, right? And it is personal power and it is punishment if you dare question anything that man is about. I've, I've told stories about this in the past, about how RTC staff were sent to Santa Barbara back when I was a lowly Santa Barbara staff member, just querying an order from David Miscavige that came out of nowhere. I was like, what's this? I'm not doing this. And I sent it back up following the standard channels and doing what L. Ron Hubbard says when you receive an offline order. And David Miscavige was not my senior, so I didn't understand why he was giving me this order. And RTC showed up and put me on an e-meter and interrogated me and made it clear that if David Miscavige sent me an order, my only ask, my only job was to get it done. Not even ask how high, just do it. And that, be, that became crystal clear to me all the way back in the 1980s. Uh, actually, that was the early 90s. So um, so that's how Miscavige runs his ship. And uh, and you don't get to get away with questioning him or asking questions about any of that. So that's, that's as crazy as that might sound to you and as nuts as that environment might sound, that's the reality. So at least it's the reality I lived. There you go. 
All right, folks. So that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me blabber on here at a mad rate. I always appreciate your viewership and your support. And uh, I hope that you will like and share and get this stuff around and uh, share my channel. I recognize and acknowledge I am a very niche channel. I'm only going to grow so big and so far and so wide. But I think that there's a lot more people out there who might want to hear what I have to say or benefit from the numerous uh, videos I've already posted about cult recovery and cult intervention and cult work and across the board, Scientology and otherwise. And I hope you guys agree, and I hope you'll help me share and get this information out there. All right, I will see you next week. Bye-bye.